Okay. Right. So can you just start by telling me your name and your position? So I'm Aris Katsarakis. I'm a professor of evolution and genomics in the Department of Zoology. And I'm also a uh, tutorial fellow at St. Hilda's College. That's great. Thank you. So um, first of all, tell me a little about yourself, um, starting from your earliest interest in, in um, well, science generally, um, and roughly how your career has developed from that point to where you are now. Yeah, so um, I've been working on virus evolution uh, for over 20 years now, and um, I started uh, working in this area for my PhD at Imperial College, um, also where I did my undergraduate degree. Um, and so I did, I did my PhD in this area, and then I moved to the Department of Zoology in Oxford in around 2004 to start my first postdoc. Um, again, on, on virus evolution, a, a, a thing that I've been working on throughout uh, my, my research career and have been here ever since, eventually as a full professor um, and also as a, as a college tutor and um, it's, an, it's an area that I've worked on. I'm particularly interested in the evolutionary biology of viruses and their interactions with their hosts mm -hmm. and how that's played out over various timescales. So from millennia down to, down to months and years and days across, across all the different timescales and seeing how, how these two types of entity interact. Mm, mm. So let's start with a really basic question. What is a virus? Um, so, uh, well, difficult question. <laughs> um, so P Peter Medawar famously quipped that it's a, a piece of bad news wrapped in a protein coat. Um, they are basically a non-cellular replicating entity. Um, much debate over, over whether they're alive or not. Um, I'm, I'm on the side of yes, or it's not that relevant a question given that they, 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 they have all the properties of a, of a living organism in, in many senses of the word. Um, they're all around us. We know about them most when they make us sick. Um, but they don't always make us sick. There's lots of viruses around in the environment, in our bodies, uh, many of which are, are relatively unnoticeable. Um, there are even viruses that are uh, a part of our life. For example, um, our genomes contain uh, domesticated material from ancient viruses that contributes to our own biology. So how um, did they get there? So very occasionally, Viruses will infect uh, a cell from the reproductive tissue of its host, a germline cell as we call it, and if that happens they can be passed down the generations, um, potentially for very, very long periods of time. Um, and if they're not harmful, they'll just stay there, um, or they can just stay there rather. And occasionally, if they do actually contribute a, a, a benefit, uh, natural selection may act to preserve them. So one, one of the most famous examples is uh, a gene called syncytin, which is involved in uh, reproduction. It's involved in protecting the, uh, the fetus from the maternal immune response, and that's derived from an ancient viral envelope gene uh, and, and is taken on that role. Um, so the, these endogenous viruses, these integrated viruses, are a, a big part of, of my research. Mm, mm, um, mm. So if I should I jump past this one, I usually do this one first. The, if you had to define a single big question, 
that's the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, what, what would it be? What has, one question, uh, what has been the, the role of viruses in the evolution of their hosts? Um, that, that's probably what, what the, the most interesting one. Mm, I'm, mm. So I'm you're suggesting that, that viruses have actually driven the way other species, including ourselves, uh, have evolved? Yes, yes. Mm, mm. Uh, they, they have to. We don't know the, the extent, and, and understanding the extent to which they have done that is, is what interests me. Mm. Um, so what methods do you use to explore that question, the one-related question? So most of my research until about a few months ago has been primarily computational. So I, um, because of this process of integration, um, if you read the genome of an animal, you will find inside it hundreds of thousands of tiny little fragments of viruses. And so by, by reading the genome of an animal, like our own genomes or, or a mouse or, or any other one, you can find this, the, all these little pieces of DNA um, and try and piece together the history of how they got there um, and the pattern of interactions with their hosts um, at the genetic level. Mm. How, how um, do you recognize that a piece of DNA is virus-derived? So they... They so if you if you know what um, if you translate DNA into a protein, you can look for parts of our DNA that that look like they would encode proteins that resemble contemporary circulating viruses. Uh, 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 so, of course, over time, there is degradation, and you have to account for that. And, and look for things that still resemble viruses enough given the amount of time that they have degraded and have been in our genomes. Um, so that, that, that would be the way. So um, <clears throat> what is it about viruses that interests you particularly, um, aside from their public health um, concern? So... So f there's a couple of reasons why they're, they're fascinating to, to an evolutionary biologist. What, one is um, the speed at which they evolve uh, when, when we interact with them in the present day. Um, and that's very uh, useful to an evolutionary biology researcher because you can, when you're, when you're interrogating a contemporary virus, you can actually see it evolve. Um, so for example, um, in addition to the endogenous viruses, before COVID came along, I was also working on, on HIV. Um, on the one side, you have the obvious public health reasons for that. Um, on the other, you can see the virus picking up um, resistance mutations to the, to the drugs that we use to combat it, uh, to the immune systems that, that interact with it. Um, and you can even see these viruses evolve within the time course of the infection of a single patient. So it, it's a very powerful source of data to ask fundamental questions about evolutionary biology. Um, and, and on the other hand, from, from a more, uh, in a more general way, they're this um, almost invisible entity that is pervasive throughout life and I believe has shaped the evolution of life. 
um, in a way that's quite hard to, to get at. So, so the challenge of, of unraveling that um, and understanding that influence is, is one that intrigues me. Mm, mm. Um, so so you say they change very rapidly, but in order to go on working as viruses, if you like, mm -hmm. they also need to have some kind of stability, presumably, mm -hmm. over long periods. Yeah, so um, th they have a tremendous capacity to mutate, um, but um, evolution picks the, the mutations that work, um, and so there is an, a disconnect between um, what mutations happen and what mutations stick around uh, in the long term, uh, because a lot of the change that happens in a virus actually breaks the virus, makes, makes it less able to do its job. Um, and that's, that natural selection on, on that variation slows down the, the long-term change of the virus. Um, and actually, one of the research questions that I've been most fascinated with um, over the last few years um, is a product of this. It's the, the so-called um, time dependency of evolutionary rates. It's a kind of viral version of relativity. Um, so depending on the time scale, that you look at a virus, the apparent rate of evolution is very, very different. So if you examine shallow time scales, you see these very, very rapid rates of evolution. But if you look over the, the longer term time scales, um, the apparent rates of evolution drop uh, almost to the level of, of, their, of their hosts. Not quite, it's still a bit higher than that, but, but it drops by several orders of magnitude. Um, and, and understanding this, this disconnect in rates is, is, is a theoretical problem I've, I've been working on. Mm, mm. Um, so you can recognise virus that's um, been extracted from very, very ancient sources? You can, yes. Um, so they... If you interrogate a genome, you can find viruses that are, say, 30, 40, 50 million years old. Um, and by rights, they shouldn't be recognizable if you consider the short-term rates of evolution. They should have changed so much um, that you wouldn't be able to recognize them. Um, but as a result of two processes, one is this discrepancy between long-term and short-term rates, but also um, when they get into the genome, they stop evolving at their own rates. They, they evolve at the rates that their hosts evolve at, so they essentially freeze in time um, and that, um, that preserves them. So they, they, they are essentially genomic fossils um, of viruses that were around a really long time ago. Mm, mm. I've, I've just put one word here, bats. Yeah. <laughs> so bats were something you were looking at before COVID came along. Um, what, what, what's special about bats? So bats are a... Um, they, they're a reservoir species for medically important viruses. So, um, you know, rabies, um, Ebola, all sorts of viruses that, that trouble us seem to go through bats. Um, SARS-1 was also, when it, when it came along, bats were the first culprits, although in the end, um, is it civet cats that, that, that were eventually identified as being the, the zoonotic reservoir? Um, so they seem to be able to carry the viruses without consequences for themselves and seed viral transmissions into other species. So that, that's another major current research question of mine, is why, why do viruses transmit between species? Um, and so 
we've been very interested in the intersection between these two questions. Um, because viruses are occasionally domesticated by their hosts, uh, one of the ways in which they're domesticated is by contributing to the immune system of their hosts. So, so the hosts essentially borrow uh, bits of the viral genome and repurpose them and use them as a, as a counter mechanism. Um, and I'm very interested to determine whether one of the reasons why bats are really good reservoir species is through this co-option of viral sequences as part of their own uh, defense mechanism. And there's all sorts of very interesting viruses in bat genomes, including um, filoviruses. So this is the, the lineage of viruses that includes Zaire Ebola virus and, and Marburg. Um, and, and we've shown almost a decade ago that, that the bat genomes are, 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 have got quite a few uh, viruses like this. Um, so viruses like these Ebola viruses or, or retroviruses, which are more common, we're, we're interested in determining whether they're, they have such a role. Mm. And, and are you close to answering that question? So on a, on a computational level, we've identified a few um, integrations that appear to bear the characteristic hallmarks of selection that these kinds of conflicts would, would engender. Um, in terms of actually really determining that properly, we need to do some lab work, and this is a major part of my current research and my research going forwards over the next few years. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay, so let's let's um, turn towards the COVID pandemic itself. Yeah, can you remember how you first became aware that it was? around? Was it just through hearing in the media like, like most people that something was going on in China or were there kind of internal channels that you were involved with? So, um, okay, so my first sort of uh, interest sort of in, in this uh, came about, uh, so in January 2020, um, I was writing um, an ERC grant uh, which I've subsequently been awarded and I'm currently doing. Um, and that grant had uh, two questions. One is this, the, the role of viruses in evolution. The other one is the reconstructing the transmission dynamics of, of viruses over time. And as I was writing it and thinking of examples of interesting transmissions, um, I saw news reports of uh, an interesting looking virus uh, that, that seemed to be uh, emerging in Wuhan and actually there's, there's a couple of sentences in, in, in my grant saying, oh, um, one, one thing that, that might be interesting is, is seeing what, what these coronavirus viral transmissions would do and, and, and whether they might be important and, and so um, it was given as, a, as an example. Um, obviously, I didn't know at the time that quite how, how impactful it would end up being, but, but it, it did seem like a quite worrisome and interesting transmission. Uh, I kept an eye on it. Um, beyond that, academically, I didn't turn much further attention to it at the time in January. Um, it did impact my, um, my, my, my life more generally. Um, so the first real sort of impact on me as, as, as an individual, I think, probably comes from um, my, my, my trade union activities at the time. Um, so in, in March, just before the 
in early March, um, we were um, on on strike um, in the University of Oxford and and in the UK more generally. I was uh, coordinating the strike in Oxford uh, as as president of the of the Oxford branch uh, of UCU um, and. Uh, the last day of the strikes would have been a massive rally in Oxford with, with speakers and a march and all that sort of thing. Uh, but it was in, in sort of early to mid-March and when we were starting to, to see what was going on. Um, and actually, in response to emerging information uh, about the uh, coronavirus, we decided to cancel that. Um, and, and so we, we, we called off that last day of, of action as, as a precaution. Uh, because uh, although at the time the government was saying we're not introducing any 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 restrictions on life, it it, it didn't seem like a terribly good idea. Um, so so that was my first sort of realization that oh, and, and direct impact on on my day to day life um, mm. of, of the virus. Mm. Um, and, and since then, obviously, uh, my my academic interest in it has also increased. So what, just to start with the impact on your day-to-day -day life, what, when the lockdown finally did um, come into play uh, and the university put measures in the cross, how, how did that affect what you were able to do? So, yeah, so, so I mean, a few, a few days before lockdown, probably about four, four or five days before lockdown, I actually told my, my academic colleagues, uh, you know, nice to see you guys, I'll, I'll see you in however long I'll see you. Um, I don't think I'll be seeing you for a while. Um, which elicited slightly puzzled and, and quizzical responses. I think I think a few people thought, I'm, "What is this person talking about?" Um, so so I stopped going to to work a few days before um, before the lockdown. Um, at the time, academically, it meant that we shifted our, our research activities online, um, which for the kind of work I was doing then uh, was. Achievable, I think you know we we um, a, a lot of computational work can be done at home. Did you um, have the right kit, or did you have to take computers home? I, I yeah, we took. Uh, I, I you know everyone took their computers home. Um, obviously, um, it did impact research nonetheless because um, we were all at home. Uh, I have two small children, and um, you know having them in the house is not, is not a terribly conducive uh, way of doing, doing research, although schools didn't close straight away, did they? They closed in April, if I remember correctly. Um, and so, so I did carry on my research. I shifted more of my attention towards COVID, um, but it also, um, my, my trade union work activity escalated um, which diverted me to, to an extent away from research because I, I became involved in uh, making representations to the university on, on behalf of the trade union to, to try and uh, ensure that, that, that things are as safe as possible for, for staff. Mm -hmm. um, so, that, yeah, I think those are, those are the ways in which there was an impact. Yeah, yeah. And, and presumably there was a concern, particularly for short-term staff, about them being able to maintain their income. Yes, yes. There, there, there were um, there, there was a lot of worry about about jobs. Um, so some of these discussions with with the university, um, which at the time they were, well, in, initially for the first month or so we didn't have have much interaction. 
uh, directly with the university. Uh, we, we were sending them impassioned letters and pleas and that sort of thing, um, which initially were probably largely ignored. Um, but eventually there, there was a decision made to, to have regular meetings, um, almost weekly, uh, between the trade union and the university, um, which I think was the right decision. Um, and in those meetings we talked about things like the application of the furlough scheme, um, the impacts on this on, on, on short-term staff, the, the, um, the impacts on staff with protected characteristics, all that sort of thing, and, and trying to make sure that all these things were um, applied in a way that was as fair as possible and, and protected, protected people as, as possible as, as, as could be. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, let's go back to your shift. You said you shifted your research mm -hmm. to COVID. Um, how did that come about? What, you know, what questions, I've got so many questions, I said this. Yeah. Um, it, what were the, the immediate questions that you felt that you were in a good place to, to explore? So, uh, as an evolutionary biologist and someone who's been looking at all sorts of different viruses, um, I, I felt in a, in, in a good place to understand the, the evolution and the interactions of these viruses and their hosts. Um, and so I was interested in trying to see what we could predict, you know, what, what, whether, whether this is something that, that, that would run its course, whether it's something that, that, that would be, be um, an escalating threat, um, and trying to sort of a lot of people at the time were saying things with incredibly incredible certainty, um, and I was interested in interrogating that and seeing what 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 really can be said with with certainty based on what we know. I mean, there were no SARS-CoV-2 experts at, at the beginning of, of mm. the pandemic because mm. this virus didn't exist. Um, but I felt that because I'd looked at viruses broadly, um, it, it's something I I, I should think about. Mm. It, it didn't dominate my research entirely, but it was certainly something I I, I was looking at. Mm, mm. Um, and the, and the genome was available from the end of January, wasn't it? It was, yes, yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, o over the, the the months after that, there, there were various sort of. In a sense, you, you, you kind of had to look around for opportunities to, to say something interesting and, and see what you can work out. Um, and, and for example, one of my DPhil students um, was, uh, we were working together on this theoretical question on the time dependency of rates of evolution. Um, but because of his background from um, He's in, originally from Iran, and Iran had an incredibly um, horrific um, manifestation of, uh, of the epidemic, uh, an epi a local manifestation of the pandemic. Um, he was interested in seeing if we could evaluate the true impact, because there was a, a, a genuine fear that there was a big undercounting. Um, and so we, were, we, we suddenly turned our, our attention to, to seeing if we can measure the impacts and see you know, how, how bad is uh, the, the, the local wave in, in Iran and because of his contacts and his interests um, and my role as a supervisor, well, I, I sort of said, yeah, okay, just divert your research to that if that's what you want to do and, and, and I'll help you as much as I can and, and so we, we looked at that. Um, another, another thing I got uh, involved in very, very early on was a, a collaboration with um, a team in uh, Imperial. Um, this is a, the, the team that, that involves um, 
or one of the members of the team was Neil Ferguson, for example, who 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 did the, the paper on uh, on the initial um, evaluation of the epidemic that led to to, to the lockdown, mm. um, and um, one of the dominant ideas at the time was uh, that herd immunity would naturally stop the uh, epidemic, and uh, we did some some theoretical and analytical work with with this team to to show that. Um, it actually didn't look to be doing that at all, um, and and so, you know, we 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 put a paper out on 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 that and showing that in 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 Europe for where we could, where we had data there there was no evidence of herd immunity damping, um, damping these epidemic waves. Um, so yeah, those were sort of initial things I did. I the the Iran work carried on. We're, we're still working on. Um, Undercounting mortality and, and, and reconstructing the, the, the dynamics of, of the epidemic in Iran with, with my students. Mm. Um, and that you know operated as a kind of case study that has enabled you to you know arrive at particular insights into the way the virus works and moves and how it affects populations. Yeah, I mean, one thing we've we've noticed and and, and, and we we've just uh, we've we've just submitted a paper on this actually and we have put it out as a, as a preprint already is is that um, Iran despite the incredible toll um, that the virus has had there um, doesn't seem to be anywhere near near an end so you have these peaks uh, coming over time peak after peak after peak um, all of which are very high in fact. Escalating peaks are, 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 are higher in Iran relative to previous peaks, um, and and so we're, we're interested in in the observation that there doesn't seem to be a, a, a natural end through through past infection. Um, Iran has quite or had quite low uh, vaccination rates, um, and so understanding that uh, and what that might mean more more globally is is, is something that that is very interesting to us. Um, it, it echoes um, findings in in Manaus, Brazil, for example, where we had this um, the second wave of the uh, what, what's now called uh, gamma uh, variant, uh, w which seems to have been higher than the first, um, and uh, similar things in in, in um, southern Africa have been seen. So so this 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 general sort of observation of, of a lack of natural damping uh, over time is, is something that I think is very important. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, you, you read general statements from time to time about things like the, that as the virus uh, evolves through the, the different Greek letters of the alphabet, not counting Omicron because that seems to have come from somewhere else, but the previous ones that affected this country mm -hmm. um, became more transmissible with time. It is, is, does that general, generalisation stand up? And if so, what, what would be the evolutionary reason for that? Yeah, so um, I, I believe it does stand up. I think um, you know, this is a virus that's uh, crossed into humans uh, as, a, as a sort of generalist virus. It was quite good at replicating in humans, but also not really adapted to human replication probably quite good at replicating in other animals too. Um, but what we saw in this first phase um, of the pandemic is this accumulation of variants that are, are better at transmitting in humans, um, with the, the alpha and then delta variants being about 50% more transmissible respectively. 
Um, like you say, Omicron is a slightly more complicated story. Um, and, and this is something that um, may continue. Uh, it may also change as, as immunity builds up in the population and the, the dynamics of, of the virus do change. Um, but but, it, but it's a, a very important feature, a feature that, that surprised a lot of people. I think the idea that transmissibility would increase by 50% uh, shortly after a less than a year, right, for, for the alpha variants. I'm trying to do the math in my head, yeah. yeah I, I, um, I, I think I've, I've look, kind of lost a whole year, so when I try and think back to what happened, it's, yeah. the idea that it's pretty much two whole years ago now seems yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I think that the magnitude of that surprised a lot of people. Um, and I, I mean, I at the time was, was, was so taken aback, I thought, Okay, if this has happened, it might happen again. So we we, we better take this quite seriously. Mm, mm. Um, yeah. So in general, would you say what you know about viruses and what you've observed about SARS-CoV-2 uh, make you more or less anxious about how it might evolve in the future, and indeed what other viruses might emerge? I would say probably more. Um, so, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of my research trying to piece together what, an angel, what, what a viral transmission might have looked like by putting together indirect facts on events that happened millions of years ago. Here we have something that, that's, that's playing out in front of our, in front of our very eyes. Um, and things that we've only hypothesized are, are happening. Uh, adaptation and the speed of adaptation is, is happening in a, in a measurable sense, um, and that that I don't I don't think that any of us really thought that the speed of adaptation could be as high as it is, um, and that that definitely is something that worries me. Uh, yeah. So uh, among your research community. I mean, it, it's certainly in Oxford as a whole, but there, there have been you know, hundreds of people, thousands probably, whose research pivoted uh, to some aspect of the, of the pandemic. Um, did it, has it felt to you like being a more collaborative exercise than, than the, the way you were used to doing research previously? Um, it's, it, it's a very strange experience that I think more interactive, certainly, um, and, and more collaborative to, to an extent. Um, I mean, the, the speed of doing research is one that I don't think any, any of us has encountered before. Um, so, for example, you know, the, the proliferation of preprints um, and the fact that people put out information all the time on, on what they think might be happening, um, and even, you know, even social media, right? Like, people will put a plot on Twitter and, and suddenly that becomes what everyone is talking about for a few days and, and trying to work out what it means, how to debunk it. So, so, so having the scientific community interacting in this intense way is very, very new um, and very, very, uh, very challenging, but, but also, also quite fascinating from, from, a, from a research perspective. Mm. Um, collaborative, yeah, I mean, Collaborations are kind of fish and fusion a bit in this climate because um, they're not all lasting. So you may you may sort of interact with a few people to try and follow up one question and with a different set of people 
to follow up another. So, so certainly collaboration is, is, is part of it. Um, I, I don't think it's um, academia is academia, so competition always exists among the collaboration, unfortunately. Um, but people are more, yeah, no, but I think it's fair to say people are more collaborative. I, I mean, you know, we saw with, um, with South Africa, for example, and, and the data they were putting out, um, now with the Omicron variant, for example, um, potentially to, to the, you know, the detriment of, of, the, of their, own, um, their own country's economy, that the idea of putting out data is, is, is an important one and, and thankfully is generally upheld by, by most people. Mm -hmm. And have you personally felt a sense of responsibility to um, give advice, either formally through the various committees that have been set up or, or through using public channels? Yeah, uh, I, I have. I, th I think um, I, I generally try and respond to, to queries and requests to, to contribute uh, as, as much as I can, constrained by the, the realities of life. Obviously, we don't have you know, infinite time, uh, but, but I have done, um, you know, more media work in, dur during the pandemic than, than I have ever done before. Um, and how, how did you feel about um, that? It, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a really interesting experience. Uh, I, I think um, it, it's challenging trying, trying to work out understandable ways to, to, to explain things. Um, it's something I feel I should do because I'm in a good position to do it, and, and so I do it. Um, in, in terms of committee work and, and that sort of thing, um, I try to contribute through 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 committees and, and, and larger groups when I can. Uh, there's the trade union work, for example, where, where, where I do try and use my expertise there. Um, in the initial phases of, of the pandemic, I was invited to um, to be co-opted onto a, a group called Science uh, Scientists for Labour, who were giving scientific advice to to the Labour Party. Um, I initially was quite involved with that. Uh, I eventually drifted away for, for various reasons. Um, and, and now most, most recently, a, a few weeks ago, I, I was asked to get involved in, uh, in Independence Age, um, which I, 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 I've gone to, to two of their uh, briefings so, so far and, and see, see what I can contribute. So, so, mm -hmm. As as and when I, I, I offer my advice um, in you know in, in the in zoology for example which is where I, I work um, because I uh, recently published a paper on um, mitigation in universities with uh, Trish Greenhold oh, and a yes, few yes, other people. Oh yes, bring that up. Yes, um, just tell me a bit about that. So what was that setting out to do? So um, we 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 were. You know, because we both work in, in universities and um, and also on COVID, a lot of people were asking us, well, how, how do we keep ourselves safe in universities? So, so we kept on getting these personal questions and thought, well, let's, okay, well, let's try and try and formalize a response mm. and, and actually produce a, a, a paper on this to give a, a general uh, guideline on, on how to make things as safe as possible. And this also included a couple of other Collaborators, collaborators, Tristan Wise and, and Stephen Griffin, um, and so um, we put together this this paper, uh, sent it to to trade unions, to to colleagues, to, to anyone who, who who were interested. We also published it as a as a as a paper, um, and um, 
one of the things that came up in, in zoology, for example, was because we're, we're designing a new building, um, the, the people responsible for that were, were interested in seeing whether we can incorporate any of this guidance into uh, the structure of the building in mm. terms of ventilation and that mm. sort of thing, because mm. we were you know, giving specific um, suggestions on, on the rate of air exchange, on filtration, on that sort of thing, which are quite hard to add to buildings, but are easier to engineer from the start. So, so that, that, you know, that's something that came up. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, that's... Uh, so, uh, and then there was, a, yeah, there was an open letter in the BNJ, that's quite a recent thing. Wasn't it? That just yeah, um, there have been a few open letters over, over the over the years. Mm. Um, the, the vaccines plus one, I think, yes, is probably one. Yeah, yeah, so so that yeah that was um, yeah that that came about uh, was it a couple of months ago? I, I, I can't even remember now. But but the yeah the the, the the overarching sort of motivation behind that was to emphasize the, the, the point that um, you know, vaccines are fantastic and we should deploy them as much as possible, but they may not always be enough uh, to control pandemic waves in, in every setting and that we need to be using all the tools at our disposal um, in order to, to, to protect ourselves from, uh, from the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, and this comes, we didn't talk about any escape before, but one of the tricks that the virus, viruses in general have up their sleeve is this notion of it being an escape. Can, can you just talk a little bit about that? What yeah. Um, so, nat natural selection pushes the evolution of a virus um, in, in particular directions, depending on the selective pressures that the virus encounters, and probably the initial selective pressure SARS-CoV-2 encountered was uh, around transmission. Um, but as immunity becomes more of a pervasive feature of the landscape uh, for this virus, um, the need to overcome this immunity is, is uh, a bigger force uh, in, in its evolution, um, and has probably to a large extent determined the, the emergence and dominance of, of the Omicron variant. Um, to an extent, Delta. Delta was a little immunovasive, but no way near as, as much as Omicron. Um, and so um, vaccines, uh, vaccines at, the, at low levels of application interact in complex ways with, with natural selection. So if, if replication is very high, and you're introducing a bit of immunity into the population, that can actually escalate the uh, evolutionary pressure and, and hence the likelihoods of, um, of the emergence of immune escape features in, in the genome of the virus. At very, very high levels of vaccination, um, that probably goes away because of the, uh, the effects of high levels of application on the vaccine on, on the transmission of the virus. So one, once you vaccinate everybody, this is probably less of, a, less of an important process. But uh, as you vaccinate the world, um, the importance of keeping transmission low, both for the public health, uh, obvious public health benefits of, of lower transmission in an unprotected population, but also in terms of minimizing the risk um, of the emergence of, of immune escape variants is, is a very important um, 
aspects and, and one one we one we emphasized in in that open letter mm, mm. Um, yeah. and um yeah um i think you're somebody i ought to ask the political question to what extent do you think those who are setting the guidelines have paid attention to the the huge body of scientific research that's gone on about how to manage uh, this outbreak um, they observe it. I mean, you know, the, the there is a ver the the amount of evidence produced here locally in the UK uh, that can guide the pandemic responses is is vast. I mean, there's an incredibly incredibly um, alert system, um, both both of scientists but through public health um, as well. Um, so we have really really good data to to inform our response. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that the, that the government, while aware of it, has not always acted on it in, in a timely fashion. Um, and I think this, is, this has been um, a pervasive feature of the response in the UK from the, the, the delays involved in, uh, in the first lockdown, um, from the delays um, from the lack of, a, of, a, of an October circuit breaker in 2020, um, the delay in acting on, on the Delta information, for example, and, and uh, you know, not, not restricting the, um, the transmission of the virus from India where, where it emerged to, to the UK um, uh, th throughout, really, I, I think. And, uh, that, and now, so here we are at the end of January uh, 2022. Yeah. Um, being told that pretty much all restrictions will be lifted imminently. Do you think that's too soon? Yes, yes, mm. I think it's too soon. Yeah, I think we're yeah. It's 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 a it's a gamble, and um, you know it, it is possible that that after the Omicron wave does pass through, it is possible that we may have a period of relative quiet. Uh, but it is also possible that we will not, and, and also the the level of uh, of public health interventions will also shape the the, the points at which the, the the case rate will settle. Um, and so, by by taking away all restrictions, we are going to determine the number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths that that we will see over the coming months, and they could be lower. Um, if, if we took a more cautious approach. Mm -hmm. So one of your other papers, which I forgot to pick up on, was on, uh, addressing this question of endemicity mm -hmm. and how that's presented in a somewhat misleading way sometimes. Can, can you just talk us through what endemic means to you uh, and how, it, uh, how it's relevant in this? Yeah, um, so, so a, lot, a, lot of time, a lot of the time you hear people use the words uh, endemicity and they kind of intermix it with uh, assumptions um, about what viruses do in terms of their epidemiology and their infection and, and this sense of a, an inevitable march towards um, a calm, benign, harmless future. Um, and you know, you, you sometimes hear politicians say, oh, endemicity is inevitable and endemicity is going to be fine. Um, and so I, I sort of wrote this piece to kind of explain what endemicity means in an epidemiological sense. Um, it just means a relative stability of case rates. Um, it doesn't mean that that one will be, will be high or low or benign or not benign. 
Um, and so I was interested in, in highlighting that the, the effects of our actions will, will determine what that potential endemic future would look like and whether it's one that, that, that is desirable or not. Um, and I think a, you know, an endemic future with a really high case rate is one that will have a lot of uh, death and, and, and disease and also one that will allow the virus more opportunities to, to evolve um, and cause more problems down the line. And, and the, the way to avoid that is to keep the, the, the non-pharmaceutical interventions going for longer, do you think? I think until, until more of the world is vaccinated, in a targeted way, they do need to be switched on for, for longer. Mm. Um, and I think we also need to look into um, structural alterations much more. So things, things that can be going on in the background that, that disrupt our lives as little as possible, that can be maintained in perpetuity um, in order to make sure that endemic set points is as low as possible. Such as? What are we talking about? So things, things, that, uh, things like ventilation, for example, infiltration, mm -hmm. um, that will require a massive investment, um, but once they are put in, no longer disrupt our, our lives um, in the same way as, as, as other things. Um, I mean, you know, mask wearing, for example, is, um, is a slightly disruptive activity, um, and that, that, that could potentially be reduced um, as other aspects of, of, of the response is, is strengthened. Isolation as well um, can be kept as, as, as short as possible, um, and you know, deploying the science through, through testing and that sort of thing to ensure that it can be as, as short but also as safe as possible is a really important um, uh, aspect uh, of our public health policy um, that, that we could maintain, although it is looking like it won't be maintained at all going forwards. Um, so the, these kinds of structural alterations, investments in um, further research, um, we're still vaccinating people against the initial strain of the virus that emerged in Wuhan two years ago. Um, and I think it's about time that we consider updating our vaccines um, to, to, to other newer strains in order to, to engender broader immune responses. Um, and obviously, as, as the science develops, the hope is that um, with better structural interventions, the, the individual level interventions and restrictions will keep going down um, to, to, to the point where, where they no, no longer influence our lives. Mm, mm. So, um, to, to what extent have you felt personally threatened by the possibility of, of being infected, or have you been infected? Um, I don't believe I have been infected. Um, I've, I've never tested positive. Um, I, it's varied. Um, I'm probably, I'm, I, I've, I've worried, I've worried because of the unknowns, I don't, I don't know what, um, you know, the long-term impacts of, of COVID infection will be, I don't think anybody does, and that's something that concerns me, um, I'm worried about my, my family, mm, my, yes, my kids, my kids partner. And the rates in kids are very high at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, I mean, my, you know, my, my daughter's school has got cases all, all the time, and, and, and it's a, you know, it's a, it, it is a matter of time until she gets it. Um, 
I, I was extremely uh, concerned and impacted um, in uh, October this year. I, I had to, to go to Greece because my, my dad was um, in hospital and, and, and sadly passed away. Um, but I was visiting him in uh, ICU uh, every day, so I had to take a test every single day. Um, and I, you know, I was terrified at the idea that I might also bring him the virus mm -hmm. um, and did everything I could to, to, to minimize that. Mm -hmm. um, direct fear for, for myself is, 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 is not, it's, it's not the overriding concern. Mm -hmm. I, I think I, 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 I feel that I'm, I'm personally, I mean, this is all subjective, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about feelings. Yes, yes. I, I don't fear death from COVID. Um, I am concerned about um, the, the possible long-term implications because it, you know, it's a virus that we know so little about. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, so did you, did you, I think you mentioned that, did you work longer hours than usual during the pandemic? I think that's, yeah, uh, yes. Whether those hours could all be described as work is, is another question. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, the experience of, of homeschooling two kids yeah. while, while trying to work and talk to the media and be involved in advisory bodies um, is one where you, you would kind of wake up and be involved in things mm. until you went to bed. Mm, mm. How much of that was actual work is, is another question mm, because mm. My my partner also has has a full time had a full time job through throughout most of the pandemic and um, and we were kind of trying to somehow manage mm -hmm. all of, all of these activities together. Um, but it, it's certainly certainly one where yeah uh, much of the working day is, is covered with thoughts of, of much of the day is mm -hmm. covered with thoughts about work. Although mm -hmm. all academics tend to do that to themselves anyway yes. to an extent. <laughs> um, yeah. mm. Uh, we've covered that. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, are you normally involved in teaching and, and how is that impacted by the pandemic? Yeah, so um, I, yeah, I, I do teaching in the department and in the college. Um, a, a lot of that has moved online and, and so getting to grips with uh, the software for moving lectures online and, and, and um, doing that is, 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 is a pain. Recording lectures is, is, a, is, is, is not, uh, not a trivial activity. Um, uh, I, I quite like the products of a recorded lecture, but, but I, I do obviously enjoy the, the in-person version of it more. Mm -hmm. um, tutorials, of course, are a massive part of, of teaching in Oxford that I'm involved in. That there are periods where that has been online um, in the last autumn, um, some of that I did in person, um, trying to incorporate all, all the guidance um, that, 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 uh, that, that we were working on. Uh, so ventilation, masking, distancing, keeping numbers low and, and, and encouraging people to be safe. Um, some of it inevitably moved online because if someone was sick or if someone was waiting for a test, then, then obviously we, it would go online. Um, and so it's been a, it's been a, it's been a mix. It's been um, it's been interesting. I mean, so for example, on online tutorials, are I, I find um, are, are draining for the tutor. 
because you you end up doing more more of the talking and the work compared to an in-person tutorial I think um, so it's, it's really hard work um, it's probably it just because the students feel more um, apprehensive or nervous in, a, in an online situation that they're less forthcoming and they can't interact with each other in the same way they can't interact with it yeah, yeah. The, the interactions between them mm. are, are, are low it's, but but also I think um, I mean, tutorials are meant to be interactive, right? It's not meant to be just a tutor talking. And I think um, non-verbal cues are, are an important aspect of encouraging participation. Um, and those are harder to do. You, 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 have to, you have to say, you know, you've got two students. Well, well you know, Lisa, what do you think? Um, and and in, a, in a real tutorial, I would almost never do that. I would never call someone by name and tell them to participate. I, w I would pause and, and kind of nod and look at them and, and, and it would happen. Um, and, and that's, that's difficult to, to replicate online. It's, mm. it's, it's a lot more artificial. Um, how, however, in terms of what you can give them as a tutor, in terms of the delivery of material, uh, I actually think it's possibly, in some, some cases, uh, even even better, um, but yeah, in, in the long run, I wouldn't like to see it replaced. Mm. Uh, mm. The in person. Do you think there's scope for, for yeah. having a balance between the two in future, regardless of, of infection? I think a balance. Yeah, I think that there are topics that that work well um, online, and I, I, the more didactic ones, for example, do, do work quite well. I I, I wouldn't. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's something we, we should exclude. Um, obviously, I think you know, research and uh, feedback is, is going to be really important in determining whether, whether that is something that, that will stick around. Um, I, don't think the, 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 I don't think I'd like to see the lectures be, be replaced with, with recordings. I, I think that would be a terrible, terrible thing to happen to academia in the long run. I think the... Um, Although a lecture does look like it's quite one-dimensional, the lecturer is just standing in the front and talking, uh, I, I think the, the feeling um, and the, um, the performance element of it is actually quite an important part of, of learning. Um, and so I, don't, I wouldn't like to see that go away. Mm -hmm. so, so with your union hat on, how would you evaluate how well the university managed um, the, the HR aspects, if you like, of the pandemic as a whole? It, it's been a mix. Um, some better than others. Um, I think um, locally the University of, of Oxford has been quite tied into matching what the government guidance is. And because, in my view, the government guidance has not always been adequate, as a response, because of this commitment to matching the government, uh, the university response has not always been, in my, in my view, in, enough. Um, I, I've often found myself in meetings saying things um, and, and feeling like I haven't been listened to, listened to, but then a month later, you know, the, 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 on the university side, they, they, they do look like they had listened to and they, and they do... So, so there have been cases where the university has gone over and above uh, government guidance, um, for example, around masking, around testing. Mm -hmm. um, they've had an incredibly proactive um, approach to, to vaccination. Mm 
um, and these are all re re really important things that that, that has that have done. Um, but for example, now um, you know the university has is dropping the the, the masking mandates um, in to match um, the, the government's uh, Omicron response. Uh, I, I I don't think that's right. I think we we also brought it in too late. We've had confused guidance um, around masking for, for, for parts of, of the pandemic. Um, and, and there have certainly been, been times when, when I, I felt more, more could have been done. Mm -hmm. um. So do you think, I mean, I think it, it's, a, it's a sort of uh, truism that, that lockdown was difficult for everybody. Do you think the fact that you had that your work was directly related to the pandemic and it was something that you could get on with, um, did that support your own well-being? Do you think, or was it the fact that you knew so much about the virus made you even more worried? <laughs> I think it's just the worry. I, I think yes. a, a worry in the sense of having to do this. I, d I don't know. I don't. I don't think it supports my well-being. <laughs> I think the. Um, I mean, the, the union activity, for example, w was um, very, very hard, actually. You know, the, the, the sense of making representations and feeling like you're not listened to mm. is, is incredibly draining. Mm. Um, and actually, I have, um, I have reduced my, my, my contributions to union work um, to protect my well-being mm. um, and don't, don't do as much of it now as, as I did in the in the earlier phases because of of, of well-being reasons, um, and I think um, the you know the, the kids aspect of this, um, however much I, I find my research fascinating, the the idea of, of compromising their well-being because of having to do all this at the same time it was was not a very pleasant one. So mm -hmm. so I don't. I don't. I don't think. It, I don't think it did make it more. 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 Yeah. I don't. I don't. It certainly didn't make it harmless to my well-being. In terms mm -hmm. of comparing that to other people's experience, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm necessarily best placed to make that comparison. Mm -hmm. um. uh, okay. I think we've more or less got to the end. So there, I've got two final questions. Has so has. The work that you've been able to do with COVID raised new questions that you're interested in exploring in the future. Definitely, definitely. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, the emergence of variants, for example, like how and why do these variants emerge within the early stages of a pandemic is something that has never, never really previously been thought about or seen. Um, and I'm, I'm very interested in understanding that process. Um, what are the forces that, that shape that? Um, to what extent do, um, you, know, you might have heard about this idea of uh, long-term immunocompromised chronically infected patients, for example, may be the, the, the space in which these variants arise. Uh, understanding that. So people who've got HIV, for example. In fact. HIV or, yeah. or, or, or immunotherapy or, or, mm. or, or certain cancers, for example. Um, th that might be where, where these variants sort of uh, incubate um, and, and trying to understand that and obviously to, to mitigate that as well. Um, it's going to be, a, 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 it's a really interesting question and also an important public health one. Do, do we need to, uh, different, to have different vaccination strategies, for example? Should we be deploying antiviral drugs 
um, in these situations and, and, and how, is, how is that going to play out? Um, there are these fears, for example, around um, uh, one, one of the drugs on the market at the moment, which uh, mm -hmm. mutates the virus. Um, and, and certain people, for example, are, are concerned that this might actually increase the rate of emergence of variants. I, I'm less convinced of that, but, but understanding that is, is, a, is an interesting question. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've seen your um, comments on the press on that. So wait, let's just name it, because um, I can't remember. Can you remember? Mol <laughs> Molnupiravir. Yeah, they've got these such awful names, haven't they? So the idea is that it makes the virus mutate so much that it falls to bits, essentially. Yeah. 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 I, I, and I... I I'd, 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 some people are worried that imperfect applications of that uh, might actually push the virus to, to evolve quicker. Um, and I, 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 I'm, I'm less convinced of that, around that, but I can't rule it out. Uh, and, and in uh, long-term immunocompromised patients, that might be a, a particular risk. So, so I think um, studying, you know, sampling the virus over time in, in uh, isolated patients who, who are receiving that, that drug is going to be a really interesting research question. Mm, mm. And finally, has your experience of COVID changed your attitude or your approach to your work? And are there things you'd like to see change in the future? It certainly made me uh, a lot more adaptable and um, trying to observe sort of lateral connections between different data streams um, and, and um, my, my research has always been a mix of um, hypothesis testing and hypothesis generating um, and as, as an empiricist I've always felt a little bit uh, guilty about the hypothesis generating aspects of the research. <laughs> I, think, I think scientists are always a little sheepish about sort of saying well here's some data and here's some interesting hypotheses that this data might uh might suggest um and and i think covid kind of helps to take some of that guilt away and 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 sort of enable lateral thinking as, as long as you're explicit about it and, and clear about the, what's happening is a generation of a hypothesis rather than proposing a fact um, and I think do, you know do, doing that in a more uninhibited way is is, is is something that I can see happening. Mm. And what about um, 